Hello and welcome to Start Your Week from the Bunker. I'm Andrew Harrison, here to wipe away your weekend hangovers and explain the hangovers of the week ahead is <laughs> Naomi Smith. Good morning, Naomi. How are you? Good morning, Andrew. Not too bad, thanks. Good. Did you have a wild and lucky weekend of uh, beer garden wildness? I didn't. We worked incredibly hard at Best for Britain last week because obviously we launched our UK Trade and Business Commission. We had our first live evidence session mm-hmm. uh, that Hilary Benn was chairing, but we had lots of industrialists there. We had representatives from every uh, Westminster uh, political party and we had evidence from uh, Thomas Sampson from the LSE, Vicky Price um, and also Julian Jessup from the IEA. So it's a very interesting session. And there was a lot to do at the end of it because there's going to be so many recommendations coming out of that for government that I'm afraid to say I ended up doing quite a lot of work this weekend. You didn't think you earned a pint? And, uh, a pint I, I, may, I may have had one or two glasses of wine on Friday evening, but as sort of avid watchers of Westminster will know, most of the pubs haven't reopened yet around there because they don't have outside space. Mm, there you go. Well, this week... It seems highly, highly likely that the sleeves row is going to worsen and worsen and worsen. More came out over the weekend. Uh, it emerged that Matt Hancock owns shares in a document shredding company, which is probably handy if you're in government. It was approved for supply for NH trusts, and the other shares were owned by his mother, his stepfather, his sister, and his brother-in-law. This is uh, Banana Republic stuff, isn't it, Naomi? Yeah, I mean, it is. Look, the, the allegations just keep coming on uh, Cameron lobbying on behalf of Greensill. And that's prompting more and more anger from even Tory backbenchers like Bernard Jenkin. But, you know, it's also spreading. We've heard lots of talk, obviously, about the civil service mandarins breaching the rules by having outside interests. And of course, before that, the prime minister himself, not not a couple of weeks ago, was totally embroiled in the did he, didn't he, with the Jennifer Alcuri scandal and how she may have profited from that close relationship with him as uh, London mayor. But this weekend, there was also news of the prime minister's right-hand man, Eddie Lister, being a shareholder in a company that received more than a million in taxpayer funds for NHS contracts. So it's all getting murkier and murkier. It's often called chumminess, coziness, chumocracy, but I think we do just have to make sure that we call it corruption. And it's defrauding the taxpayer when those conflicts, it's not just good enough to talk about conflicts of interest. I've heard one minister talking about it over the weekend and some of the news briefings saying oh you know it, it's it's all got to be transparent it's got to be transparent no it doesn't just have to be transparent transparency is necessary but not sufficient and I'm always amazed when you compare the rules around Westminster with the rules around say a local authority so in a local council meeting if you have a conflict of interest because say you live in the ward where a bit of housing development is meant to be going ahead you not only have to declare that you have that interest you then have to recuse yourself from the meeting Mm. lest you inadvertently influence the outcome so transparency is not just it's not just good enough to know that Matt Hancock's got you know familial relations and personal wealth benefit to be gained from something they also cannot be in any way part of any decision that may possibly end up 
giving them any financial gain? And how can you really do that when you are a cabinet member and you've got relationships and networks all over government who and, and Whitehall and, and these people that are making decisions? So uh, it's, it's getting murkier and murkier. And you're right, Andrew, this is a, a story that's just going to keep running, I think. Is it possible to predict what you think might happen this week um, from this? Because, I mean, we, we, the revelations, as you say, they keep coming and they keep coming from unexpected sources. It's almost kind of, you know, it's spreading out from camera. Well, remember that we're in an election period. So um, the opposition parties are smelling blood on this. This is not something they're going to take the foot off the gas from. And uh, Labour have published, you know, a list of questions that any watchdogs or committees that are uh, investigating this need to ask. So there's that. The journalists themselves can smell blood uh, from across the papers. And in many cases, the papers are working together and collaborating on stories um, in terms of sharing intel about who knew what and when and who was linked to who and when. It's likely that this is just going to keep going. Now, one thing that is a bit frustrating is that there are various different committees and select committees that um, are now putting up their hands and saying, well, I'm going to be the one that investigates this. I'm going to call David Cameron to come and give me answers, etc." And in a way, that might end up diluting the impact. And it might be better if there was just one very, very heavy hitting uh, inquiry into it. Um, and again, it needs to be a public inquiry. The government have said that they'll do their own inquiry, but it'll be behind, behind closed doors. And this is specifically in relation to Greensill. But one of the reasons why Best for Britain has set up the UK Trade and Business Commission is because the government cannot be allowed to mark its own homework. You have to have independent oversight of this stuff. So I don't really know how this is going to play out beyond the fact that various different select committee chairs are going to be wanting to roll up their sleeves and get stuck into this and and call various former prime ministers to give evidence and former uh, cabinet secretaries and things like that. Um, But my fear for that then is that it somehow gets diluted rather than concentrated under one banner of scrutiny. We've been waiting for something to to damage Boris Johnson for years, and it seems like nothing ever would. Just that, you know, he's so shameless that things just wash off him. Is this is this different? Is it gaining traction? I mean, it's it's like it's kind of ironic that you know the Tory sleaze phrase is coming back, but you know, in memory of the the end period, the decadent phase of the major government. But that sleaze was about exactly the kind of sex that Johnson gets away with. Mm-hmm. And this is about billions of public money. It's on a grander, grander scale. I think Andrew Ronsey was making this very clearly in the Observer at the weekend. This is not just a peccadillo with your secretary. This is billions of your money. Yeah, exactly. Um, and and I think, well, a couple of things. So first of all, a few people have been saying, what do you mean this is the return of Tory sleaze? It never went away. Now, of course, there has been sleaze across many parties. Um, and remember, under New Labour, we had all sorts of cash for access scandals and, and things like that. So uh, the, the Conservatives aren't uniquely positioned to have been uh, you know, getting into trouble over all of this. I think on Johnson specifically, this sort of feeds this this version of history where we put everything on the one man that there can be this, you know, one single person can turn the tide on things. And that so often isn't the case. And I do think that this is about a a, a broader, further toxification, not just of, of him and his government, but of the entire party. And then of course, the spillover into wider politics as well. And it's just the last thing we need in a way, because we need to restore public trust in in our politics and in our democratic processes and all these things just hurt it further and further the rot sets in and and public confidence just ebbs away. I've been running a series of focus groups uh, across the country over the last week at Best of Britain. I listened into one uh, in in Hartlepool last week. Remember, there's a Hartlepool by-election coming up. 
and the, this sort of plague and all their houses thing just comes back again and again. And, you know, I asked one of them, well, who, who, which was the last politician that you did believe in that you had faith in, that you thought was in it for the greater good rather than for themselves. And turns out it was Robin Cook. So, you know, you're going back 20 plus years uh, for many of these people to be able to name somebody that they do have trust in. So I it, look, it's not going to be good for, for, for Johnson. But then again, as you say, master of Teflon, the fact that the Arcuri story has now almost you know, entirely been surpassed by uh, David Cameron's uh, lobbying efforts. The, the number 10 machine was very effective last week at knocking off politician scandal from the front pages and onto the mandarins uh, being on the make. So they'll be doing everything they can to, to deflect this. Uh, but I think that the, the overtime, and it won't be a sort of, cataclysmic moment but I think that that erosion of oh can we really trust these people and and Rawnsley's right you know people are going to be feeling the pinch soon and when when the spotlight is properly shone on the billions and billions and billions of taxpayers money that has not only been wasted but has been given to friends and family of uh, government ministers in order to do the wasting um, I, I would hope that we would start to see a shift in the polls but that's not to say that it will necessarily go in Labour's favour Labour also need to be uh, setting out that vision as we've said so many times before in different shows it is interesting that was a quality uh, deputy heads must roll job last week wasn't it on the civil servants yeah. as stories were leaked out Bill Crothers part-time position at Greensill had been agreed to by the cabinet office do you think they'll be successful in pinning it on the civil service and having the uh, the we you know the reforms and the lessons learned all be happen to all be happening to the little people that's almost certainly where they'll start because that'll be easier and 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 less dangerous for them to push through because remember there's nothing like um a, a nice big fat tory party donor check making its way to you to make sure that you're doing everything you can to keep their channels of communication open with the powers that be over to COVID, we in the UK might think it's the beginning of the end. It is, however, still growing worldwide at an alarming rate. Global deaths passed 3 million at the weekend. Mm. India and Brazil are continuing to grow at an alarming rate. Indian cases have topped 15 million. Do you think this this kind of worsening world environment is going to affect things here? Because the, the kind of the sense here is almost out in the population. It's almost as if, well, we've done it now. We're, we're, yeah. you know, we, yeah. Pubs are reopening cafes are uh, open on the streets it's it's kind of done do you think we're going to be in for a rude awakening shortly I, I, I do I mean as you say the numbers globally are horrifying uh, we've passed that three million humans dead marker um, which is you know incredibly sad um, and in some countries like India new variants are concerning some epidemiologists and of course in many countries particularly less developed countries vaccinations have barely begun and no matter how well the UK vaccine rollout system is going it'll it'll mean absolutely nothing if new vaccine resistant strains pop up and we keep coming back to this mantra that no one is safe until everyone is safe and by everyone we have to mean the entire global population not just the UK so will this mean we keep restrictions tight at the border uh, will this slow down Johnson's all very already very rapid lockdown um, I think almost certainly not, because our government has so rarely done the right thing over the past year, which is why we have, let's remember, among the worst health and economic indicators as a consequence of COVID uh, in Europe and indeed the world. So there's lots of pressure at the moment uh, to add India to the red list. That 
in and of itself is embroiled in the issue of geopolitics, where, of course, the UK is racing to try and get a trade deal secured with India for to, to, to put pressure on India to reduce tariffs on things like whiskey and British-made vehicles. Uh, Johnson is hoping to travel there himself, which, of course, he wouldn't be able to do uh, if we if we add uh, India to the red list, or he certainly wouldn't be able to do without looking like a massive hypocrite. So I think the chances of our government, do, they will probably just try and do the fudged thing all the time that's never quite enough um, and I think we probably ought to be bracing ourselves uh, for this being the first on lockdown this year and we may well have to go back into some form of lockdown later in the year uh, because of the the grave concern of, of uh, vaccine resistant variants emerging and us having to go back and re-vaccinate the elderly and the vulnerable with boosters that would cover new variants before we've even got to, to, to some of the younger people getting their first dose of this vaccine. Unsurprisingly, uh, a new report has found that inequality in the UK has been made worse by COVID. The Resolution Foundation's research found that British people had less savings, more debt and weaker welfare support than people in France and Germany. And it warned that COVID could become a disease of the poor. Is this finally going to get inequality onto the agenda as part of the, the COVID conversation? Because people on lower incomes have suffered. We know this um, much more heavily from the disease. Um, they are not the kind of people who are able to just say, well, I think I'll just do, it, do my work from home in my slippers. You know, they have been the ones who suffered the worst. Do you mm-hmm. think it's going to get on the agenda now, finally? Probably not, um, just because we've seen decades and decades of galloping uh, wealth and income inequality, uh, often coupled by austerity and measures like that, that has caused the Resolution Foundation to reach this conclusion that while, you know, average earnings may be relatively comparable to places like France and Germany, actually because of lower incomes at the bottom level, because of very low levels of private savings, and of course, a much less generous uh, social security safety net um, than many and, and most other European countries, that UK households were particularly exposed to economic shocks. What I would say, though, is that the government needs to do something to make its levelling up agenda actually mean something. And the billions it's wasting on, you know, corruption contracts and alleged corrupt contracts and, you know, wasted uh, money giving, you know, contracts to, you know, shipping companies without ships and PPE companies that don't know how to make PPE, etc., is going to be difficult for them to then justify. And it's going to make it much more difficult for them to spend that money, but they do need to. I think the problem is that they're going to potentially spend it on the wrong things rather than doing what we've seen Biden do, for instance, with his stimulus package, um, which is just so enormous and 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 really ought to put money sort of directly in the pockets of people um, and begin to pump money into the kinds of sectors that can be job creators and, and good paying job creators as well. It's not obvious to me that this government has got that kind of industrial strategy uh, in its mind. Um, Its industrial strategy sort of seems to be cloaked under a military strategy uh, and their integrated review and their sort of closer links with Indochina um, is about the only thing we've seen coming out of this government that gives you any indication of where their priorities are. Well, speaking of uh, military and geopolitical matters, one to look out for this week 
it's highly possible that Alexei Navalny will die in prison. Mm-hmm. The critic of uh, Putin is on day 19 of a hunger strike. He's been denied access to his own doctors. He has critical heart and renal issues. The US National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan told at CNN that there would be consequences if Mr. Navalny dies. There are protests planned across Russia in the next few days. It is a horrific thing to see, and it makes one feel very impotent. It does, and it's it's really part of a suite of um, concerning stories that we're hearing about Russia this week. So, as you say, he, Navalny has been on hunger strike for nearly three weeks. Um, the reports are that his health is is rapidly declining. He could die at any moment. And, of course, remember, he's already suffered terrible poisoning in recent times, so his health is already compromised. No wonder uh, that would be affecting his kidneys, and it's reporting that he's now suffering severe back pain. Uh, and, of course, you know, of, often kidney pain would be felt there. And President Biden has denounced Russia over the situation. He's called it totally inappropriate. And these comments come off the back of new sanctions levied on the Kremlin by Washington um, and following the expulsion of Russian diplomats from the US. But actually, it's not just the US getting very, very, very concerned about Russia and expelling diplomats. There is also the military buildup along the border with the Ukraine by Russian troops. And the UK, um, the the Russian ambassador to the UK, Andre Kellen, was out this weekend denying uh, that there was sort of, you know, an imminent war and saying this is just normal uh, military preparedness exercises and things like that. But in something which is very reminiscent of the first chapter of Le Carre's Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, the BBC is reporting that the two Russian men who were suspected of carrying out the 2018 Salisbury poisonings here in the UK are being linked to an explosion at an arms depot in the Czech Republic in 2014. And for many years, it was thought that the explosion was just an accident. But now Prague is alleging that, in fact, it was a hostile act, potentially by the same blokes who Novichok the Skripals, uh, because it's found that they were in the area around the time of the bombing. Now, why would the Russians want to bomb an arms depot in the Czech Republic? Well, one motive under consideration is that the arms depot was exporting to the Ukraine. Again, adding to this you know, concern about what uh, the Kremlin's intentions are towards the Ukraine. So lots of very concerning stories emerging this week around uh, the geopolitics of that region, but of course also the implications that that has for the US, the UK, uh, and other allies. Are there any nice spires near that ammunition dump? You know, <laughs> well well known Plus. sort of uh, a tourist might wish to visit. I mean, Czech is uh, Czech Republic is an incredibly beautiful uh, country with lots of beautiful architecture, uh, so it may well be. Yeah, keep an eye on your spires, people. Finally, it's hardly the most important thing, but it's driving me to rage and shame for my club the football the european super league announced last night six english clubs announced that they will be joining a new midweek euro league of 12 manchester city manchester united arsenal chelsea tottenham and to my shame and disgust liverpool have signed up for this multi-billion pound project not one voice that i can see outside of the clubs themselves has been raised in its favor former players fans commentators Absolutely everybody has been, there's just been blanket disgust at this thing, this idea that's been hanging in the air for several years. 
UEFA and the Premier League are talking about ejecting teams from the Premier League and ejecting players from national sides. From the clubs involved, we've heard a lot of mealy mouth talk about the football pyramid. It just feels like, and I know, like in comparison to everything we've already talked about on the podcast so far, it's not really very important, but it just feels like the end of football to me. And mm. I'm, I'm absolutely ashamed that my club is involved. I thought, I mean, we all expect American owners of Manchester United and uh, you know Arsenal and the owner of Chelsea and the owner of Tottenham we don't expect much of them but I thought our owners were better how naive I was what a fool I was on this I mean our producer Alex Reese who's putting this together right now he put it best on Twitter love to wait my entire life to see my team win the trophy that's eluded them since before I was born only for them to immediately sack it off to go and chuck wads of 50 pound notes at the Petro State Clubs <laughs> So there you go. Naomi, can you sympathise with me and Alex and, in fact, the supporters of all I these can. teams? I can, I can. And, you know, um, as somebody who's not a you know massive football fan, although I do keep a, a bit of a you know watching eye on it, I'm struggling to see anyone that's in favour of it, apart from, as you say, the, the sort of the rich shareholders and, and owners of these clubs. And as I understand it, things like this have been mooted before, am I right? And in a way it was sort of used to just get, some concessions for the big clubs from the Champions League. Yes. Uh, do you think that that could be what's happening here, that they're going to sort of push them to the the brink of trying to make a change to the league? And if so, what kind of Champions League changes would they be wanting? Or do you think that this time they actually mean it and they're just going to go ahead and try and do it? It, 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 it looks like this time they actually mean it. I mean, it, it, it's it's always been leveraged, the idea that the big clubs, and by the way, asterisk the big clubs, because you know, no, no disrespect, but some of the clubs, um, some, some of the British clubs here struggle to uh, to make the top end of the Premier League, including at the moment my own club, Liverpool. But, you know, the, the, the idea that uh, the threat of leaving can be used to get concessions, there was supposed to be uh, reform to the Champions League was supposed to be announced today. And again, that would have tilted it yet further in favour of the rich clubs for more lucrative European games, placing further pressure on clubs and squads and, you know, further down, down raising the, uh, the, you know, the importance of, of the Premier League, but also the importance of championship and um, first division football, which is what the entire pyramid is made out of. But I, my fear is that this is like, they've actually pushed it too far now with a full announcement, full backing, the finances are, uh, are all in place. And, you know, there comes a point where, you know, the threat that you make never intending to fulfil, you finally go too far and you you have to fulfil it. It's been a very, very weird 24 hours though. We've, you know, Boris Johnson uh, issued one statement saying that he was against it. This was presented on the front of the Telegraph as Prime Minister goes to war with the big clubs on the back Mm -hmm. of one statement. Nigel Farage tweets that he's against a European Union of football. Which is like, well, congratulations on making a balloon animal to your liking out of these facts. Congratulations of a li- yeah, congratulations on aligning it with your your pre existing convictions on these things. Football is a strange thing because it, you, you you suspend your rational mind. You know when 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 you go into the world of football, you know it was never a penalty or it was deliberately a penalty. You can deny the evidence of your own eyes, and that expands out into how you feel about the way your clubs are owned and operated. The number of clubs who've had to, like, you know, they were fans have turned a blind eye to the, you know, the, the truly seedy derivations of their finances. Again, Liverpool, but I, I think felt... But I the terraces is where we can win the culture war. And I, I mean, I'm not familiar with how, you know, f- favourable towards football or not our listeners are. Um, but if they're anything like the cast, then it's pretty mixed, I would say. Hmm. Um, but I think what we've got to remember is that 
you know, football clubs are predominantly, but not entirely, of course, attended by younger people. Um, they tend to be um, urban. Football really, you know, outclass many other industries in terms of things like taking the knee uh, and Black Lives Matter. So I think that the terraces are somewhere where we can begin to win the culture war. And I don't think we should be sort of sneering at it. And and, and so I I think my plea is that for any listeners that sort of dismiss football as, oh, that's just, you know, not something I'm interested in. That's just yobs and hooligans. No, it isn't. It really isn't. It hasn't been like that way for decades. In many areas, I think it's, it's, it's been more progressive than some of the other institutions in this country. So I really hope that the fans... Uh, and the clubs themselves, and the FA, and others, and the you know, and the Premiership, really, you know, step up to this and 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 fight it, um, and and hopefully then, you know, we can, as you say, have that spillover into leadership on other issues too. Well, I think, to be honest, I think you've been optimistic there, now because football fans care primarily about football. But what has been interesting about it is that that you know. The, the the clubs that are the British clubs, the English clubs that have been involved in this, because no Scottish club has been invited, they have active fan groups who have been uniformly yeah. enraged and 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 uh, rejecting this. Yeah. And it's it's all from the fact that you know uh, the game is built on tradition and it's been part of your life since you were a kid. And what the recurring theme is, I would rather have a boring nil nil draw with uh, Burnley on a Saturday afternoon than meeting Atletico Madrid for the fourth time in the season um, in a game with no stakes and no risk. One thing that is worth mentioning is Ali McGovern MP, um, Shadow Sports Minister, she has had a good reminder out today that, of course, in the Conservative Manifesto at the last election, they promised a fan-led review, uh, which has yet to materialise. So let's keep the pressure up on the government to deliver that. And just one thing to bear in mind as well, that the, the thing that makes this league so kind of egregious is that although the full details aren't clear yet, it's pretty clear that none of the founding teams can be relegated. So they will be permanently in there. So there's no risk for them. So it's a meaningless game. And the, compari- the comparison is made with the NFL, where franchise clubs stay in the league forever. But the big difference is that in the NFL, there is the draft system where the teams that finish at the bottom get first pick of the best players in the next set of players that, that come into the league. Skimming. It's yeah. So, so there is an element of, um, you know, there's, you know, there's almost an element of fairness in the recruitment of players. So what's being described here is something where you've got the similar league model to the NFL, i.e. you can never be relegated, but without that, turnover in players and the injection of the best talent into supposedly the bottom teams that enables them to progress so you've got the worst of both sides and you've also got salary caps in the nfl which you won't have in this so it's like it's not bringing the nfl model to europe it's this disgusting hybrid designed only to ensure that the top clubs stay at the top and i think it may end a lot of people's relationship with football but it's going to be the biggest week for football since the establishment of the premier league in the next seven days astonishing things uh, will happen and doubtless incredibly depressing things will happen as well but you know we are where we are so naomi thank you for joining me early in the morning to talk about football which you love so (laughs) much much as well as everything else thanks thanks for joining us listeners thanks for listening uh remember there are new bunkers on monday to thursday and now saturday as well when saturday comes support us on patreon in our valuable work if you search patreon bunker podcast you'll see you can sign up for very modest amounts of money and you will get the podcast early you'll get amazing merchandise it's just remarkable um nomi thank you thanks very much have a good week everyone and we'll see you tomorrow 
Andrew Harrison and Naomi Smith appear on behalf of Podmasters Sport Management Limited. The assistant shareholders were Jacob Archbold and Yana Sofronievich, and your executive vice president is me, Alex Reese. Music by Kenny Dickinson. You've been listening to The Bunker Daily, sponsored by Gaz... Matt... Pet... So... One... No...